This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Apostle Paul admonished Timothy and by application all of us to study and show ourselves approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. For the next hour, if you are a first-time listener, uh, you have the opportunity to either email us or call us with questions you have as you've been studying God's Word, whether it's a theological issue or a personal issue that you want biblical counsel on or some applicational issues that relates to your church and ministry. We are here to help, and by God's grace, we will. All you have to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843 843- Five two five eighteen fifty nine, or you can reach us uh, through email, and the email address is tbl stands for the Bible line tbl at wagp.net, and you can email us here directly into the studio. We get tons of questions every week that come in. We we can't even answer them all. Um, I do my best to answer as many of them as I can. I would literally have to sit at my computer every day, and I'd never do anything else. Uh, but I answer as many as I can, those that come in to my personal email, those that come in uh, through the Search the Scriptures line, or those that you email us directly here into the studio. So let's go ahead and we'll get started with that, Cedric. All right, Pastor, we uh, did not have a live Bible line last week, but this question did come in from an 11-year-old, Anna Lauren, and she was talking about your first sermon in Elijah. You said Jezebel was demon-possessed. And Anna Lauren would like to know, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, I suggested that she was probably demon-possessed. I mean, if there was ever maybe a good example of someone who is driven by evil beyond typical uh, human strength, she would be a great example. So there are many examples in Scripture of demon possession where someone is controlled by uh, a demon. Uh, you can read, especially in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts. Um, in fact, let me uh, let me turn to one example in Acts chapter uh, 16. Uh, Paul is uh, in Europe. Uh, he sees his first convert, a woman named Lydia from Thyatira. And uh, when she and her household had, uh, they believed in uh, God's word, they'd been baptized. She urged him if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and, and stay. So she's a Jewish woman. Um, uh, there's a group of them that are worshiping together. Uh, they hear that uh, from the scriptures, being the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul reasons with people from the Old Testament. Remember, the early church did not have, you know, Romans or Ephesians or, you know, books were just being written. And uh, by this point, Paul had written Galatians, Uh, But nonetheless, uh, most of the New Testament had not been written. And so uh, it happened, it says, right after that, that as they were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. 
uh, following after Paul and us. Uh, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. That's interesting that a demon would say that. So this demon, you know, Satan disguises himself like a uh, angel of light. He often associates himself with the truth. And this demon was no different. But nonetheless, um, this demon did not want uh, Paul's way, obviously, to be taught. And so he had his own agenda. She continued during this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. So there's just one example from Acts, numerous examples in the Gospels. Many of you know um, there in the region of the Gadarenes, there was uh, two men who were demon-possessed. And uh, since there were so many demons, uh, when one was asked to identify himself, he, he said he was legion. And, of course, demons manifest themselves in different ways in that particular place. And if you've been with me to Israel, and we have plans to go a year from now, but I don't know that that's going to happen in light of the virus. But in May of 2021, uh, Israel is not only going to open itself up uh, anytime soon. Whether they'll be open for that trip, I don't know. And I just read yesterday that international flights won't resume in a full um, blown scale until 2021. So a lot is in flux right now. But this is like a class A spot. You can go to this place. It's in a place called Kersey. It's a national park. And there's only one place in the whole Sea of Galilee where there's a hill that cuts itself in such a way that uh, 2,000 pigs could literally run straight down into the Sea of Galilee. Now, today at the bottom of the road, there's a, a road that, at the bottom of the hill, there's a road that's been cut for cars to come through. But you can see how the hill was one continuous uh, straight line right into the sea. Not to mention when you go there, there are literal tombs uh, where these men would have lived. And uh, But one of the manifestations is they had superhuman strength uh, and they went around with no clothes on. Uh, you see an example of King Saul, who oh, he's troubled by an evil spirit, and it left him in a very depressed mood and even wanting to um, kill uh, David. So there's a wide variety of symptoms that will manifest themselves when someone is demon-possessed. Uh, personality changes, depression, aggression, uh, strength beyond um, human belief. I, I know of uh, one church that I was involved in when I was in college, and there was a young woman who opened herself up to demon possession. Now, I would suggest that it's not possible for a Christian to become demon-possessed, but she was not a Christian. And uh, she was involved, actually, with Ouija boards. And uh, in one particular meeting, uh, this one uh, brother in Christ felt led to call out um, this particular person, and the demon literally identified itself. Now, understand, this is like a conservative, uh, Bible-believing Baptist church. It's not one of these churches where there's a demon under every rock. But uh, that young lady who didn't look like maybe she weighed more than 120 pounds had literally superhuman strength, it seemed. It took two football players to hold her down. Um, and you have such an example here with uh, Legion, with this supernatural strength. Now, um, how, do, how does someone get demon-possessed? 
Well, obviously, you see it quite often in the scriptures, and some people think, well, that's just something for the Old Testament era well, or, or the early church, but that's not true. Um, demon possession still happens today. Now, there are a, a, a number of ways, again, in which a demon can manifest itself, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, spiritually, um, and, and there are certainly uh, other reasons sometimes why someone might have some physical manifestation, like take uh, there are examples in the Gospels where there's uh, someone who's epilep- epileptic. Obviously, not all epilepsy is related to demon possession. So there can be other explanations. So we need to be very, very careful in our evaluation. But typically, when you have a culture that's engaged in idolatry, uh, that is a lead-in to demon possession. And demon possession, where is a demon can literally inhabit a person's spiritual soul, so to speak. They can control their mind, their will, and their emotions. And it's a, it's, a, it's a supernatural thing. But again, we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil forces that are at work. And if a person opens himself up to the occult, they can literally become demon-possessed. Now, we live in a country where the occult was like, you know, repulsed. It was, we ran away from it as Americans, but times are changing you know, we've become more and more entertained by the occult. There are movies that we entertain ourselves on that have occult themes. There's Harry Potter, who, you know, in and of itself is really engaging and introducing children into the occult. And it's a very, very dangerous trend. But when you go to countries where the occult is widespread, missionaries will tell you there will be demon possession. And uh, there are many examples um, today of missionaries that have to deal with this. And I fear that we'll be dealing with this on a more widespread basis the more pagan the American culture becomes. And, of course, in recent months, uh, many of you have, you know, followed uh, the Roman Catholic Church where they have, quote-unquote, demon uh, exorcists who deal with this realm and and the Pope came out recently last month saying that they've seen more cases of demon possession than they ever have. Now, how they deal with it, whether they have authority to deal with it, is a whole nother discussion. But what I'm saying is this is becoming a problem that is more and more prevalent. And with that said, I'm always reminded that Satan can't do anything but what God allows uh, in reference to his people. Uh, We know that while um, technically the Bible doesn't use the word demon possession, it uses the term demonized. It's a Greek verb that means demonized. This person is demonized, and they are under the control. And I don't think that's possible for a Christian because, one, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's given us our pledge. He can never uh, leave us or forsake us. He is sealed in us for the day of redemption and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But a Christian can open themselves up to trouble if they engage in behaviors that God warns us not to engage in. And while they cannot be demon-possessed, they can be demon-oppressed. And again, um, that's a choice they make, and it's a bad choice, uh, but it can happen to a believer where they're just uh, so despondent but it's related to sin issues in their life, sexual immorality. Sometimes uh, a Christian gets involved in, in illicit drug use, and they are asking for real trouble. Uh, they are giving Satan a stronghold. In fact, it's interesting to see the occult that there is an association 
with the use of drugs and with demoni- being demonized or demon-possessed. Uh, interestingly, the um, word for sorcery in the New Testament is pharmakeia, pharmakia, and it's, uh, it's translated sorcery. We get our word pharmacy from it. And many of these uh, groups, rock groups that are involved in the worship of Satan, uh, there was a process that unfolded in their lives. They got involved with marijuana and harder drugs, and they opened themselves up to the demonic realm. So it's a very, very dangerous thing. And sadly, uh, we're seeing more and more of these kinds of things happening in our world today and even here in the United States. Great question. 11-year-old girl asked that. Some kids ask Indeed. the best questions in the world. So Indeed. I appreciate that. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, somebody you probably know because they reply, uh, his name is Nick, and he says, Hey, Pastor Brogy, as you know, I am interested in going to college for music slash worship and now feel led to get a doctorate in theology instead of a master's in divinity. I'm also interested in going at a seminary as well. Do you have any recommendations for sound Christian colleges or seminaries I might be able to go to? Well, um, if you want a doctorate in theology, a THD, a prerequisite is either an MDiv or a THD. In fact, most doctoral degrees, that was the case when I did a doctor of ministry, a prerequisite was an MDiv, which is basically uh, two years of Greek or one year of Hebrew, or a master's of theology, which was three years of Greek and two years of Hebrew, and I had the master's of theology, but you couldn't even be considered for any doctoral program. Uh, The seminaries have really loosened up. It's a money issue, I hate to say. So you can have a guy with an MA, zero languages, where he can get a doctorate behind his name, and it's really, I think, diminished these degrees. But as far as I know, no one has changed the requirements for a THD. It's still a minimum of a Master's of Divinity, though what has happened in the last couple of years is even the nature of a Master of Divinity degree has changed, where there's a couple of seminaries where you can get an MDiv with zero language training. And again, it's somewhat um, of a new approach. What drives it? Money. Let's get people into these doctoral programs. Let's get them into our seminaries. Let's get them paying these outrageous fees because it is very, very expensive uh, these days to go to seminary. So I would take it, Nick, one day at a time. Um, I admonish you to really seek the Lord in prayer to make sure that he's calling you into ministry. But if you just uh, just have this burning heart and you just want to go for it, then your next step would be to go to college, obviously, because you can't get into a seminary without a four-year college degree. Uh, you can get into some seminaries where they won't give you a, like, for instance, a good example would be Chuck Swindoll, whom we listen to on this radio station. He never graduated from college, never went to college. In fact, uh, he got out of high school and went into the Marine Corps. Uh, But later on, um, went to Dallas Seminary, and he went through the same THM program I went to. It was 128 hours, three years of Greek, two years of, I mean, three years of, um, uh, yeah, three years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, and went through the same thing I had. And he couldn't get the THM degree because he didn't have the um, college degree. So they gave him a certificate of participation, (laughs) but still that didn't stop him from God using him. The degree doesn't make you usable, uh, in ministry. You can have five 
degrees after your name and not be effective for the Lord if God hasn't gifted you and if God hasn't called you. Uh, But the degree can help potentially sharpen your sword where you can be better equipped. Um, You know, so you want to think through really carefully where you want to go. I went to Dallas Seminary. Sadly, I can't recommend it anymore. Uh, They've just drifted as a um, school. Um, Very, very saddened where they've gone. But I'll tell you, John MacArthur's school is a great school, and they have some East Coast branches as well, Master's Seminary. Um, That would be a great school to consider. And there's some others, but, uh, again, one step at a time, and uh, I'd go from there. Great question. Let's go. All right. William from Steppens City, Virginia writes, John 3.16 and John 20.31 are only two verses that teach that the believer will be given life, meaning everlasting life in heaven. The moment of belief in Jesus is the defined as justification. The old sin nature man is dead and the new creation in Christ has been birthed. Can you explore for us listeners what is salvation assurance and when does it begin? All right, so I'm not sure what you mean when you say there are only two verses that teach the believer or if you're saying these are two examples. There are two examples. They're not the only two verses by any stretch. Uh, There's hundreds of verses that teach that when a person believes on Christ, they're eternally secure and that they have everlasting life. That's the way the old English renders it, everlasting life. It's the Greek word ionion. Uh, We usually translate it uh, eternal, but um, ionion zoe, and we get our word zoology, is used for everlasting life or eternal life. But I I, I like everlasting because it's life that lasts forever. So it's not a bad uh, translation of uh, the word ionion. With that said, uh, there is a distinction, I think, that you can make between assurance of salvation and eternal security. Um, Eternal security is a doctrine that teaches that once you are saved, you are saved forever. And clearly, the New Testament teaches that, uh, that once we're saved, you can never lose salvation. Uh, John 6, 47, Jesus said, he that believes in me has eternal life, not will have. Most people think of eternal life as something way out there that you are given when you die. But uh, that's not true. The scripture is very clear. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has right now, this moment, eternal life. So if eternal life is something I can secure today and over and over, it's described with a present tense, not exclusively because there are future dimensions to it, but most often it's described as a present tense because eternal life is something I can have today. Well, if eternal life is something I can have today, it's got to be more than heaven Uh, because we're obviously not in heaven this morning. Yet if you lined up 10 people on the wall and said, give me one word that would describe eternal life, most people would say heaven because they associate it with a place. But in the New Testament, eternal life is associated with not a place, but with uh, primarily with a relationship. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is defined as knowing the Lord, not just knowing that he exists, not just knowing facts about God, but knowing God in a personal way. I can say I know our president, uh, and I know a lot of facts about him, and I've seen him a lot in the last many years, but he doesn't know my name. Uh, He doesn't have a personal friendship with me. 
And so a lot of people know God the way I know the president. They just know a lot of facts about God. And if they've been raised in a Bible-believing church and exposed to the Scripture, they may know a lot of true and accurate facts about God. I know growing up every week we cited the Apostles' Creed. And I can still, I think, do it perfectly from memory because we said it every single week. And I said it every single week for my first 18 years as soon as I could speak. And after a while, something like that sticks. And so there's a lot of good theology in the Apostles' Creed, obviously not written by the apostles, but a summary of apostolic doctrine. And there are many versions of the Apostles' Creed. The Roman Catholics is a little bit different, but still, uh, it's filled with great theology. You can affirm and cite those theological truths, but so can a demon. So eternal life is having a personal relationship with the Lord. And that really is not a simply a New Testament concept that Jesus introduced to us. It was what was promised by the Old, uh, old Covenant prophets. Uh, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Uh, after those days, declares the Lord. I've turned to Jeremiah 31, and I'm reading verses 33 and following. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and will be their God, and they will be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's what we celebrate. Uh, This is the blood of the new covenant, Jesus said in Matthew's gospel. That's what we're doing at the Lord's table. We are remembering how this became a reality. God spoke of this prophetically in passages like Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36. It had not yet happened because in time and space, sin was not forgiven, and it was not forgiven because Christ had not yet died. And so there at the Last Supper, Jesus is uh, taking that Passover meal, and he's putting a new meaning to it, and that he's looking ahead to what he was going to accomplish in the few days that would follow. And it allows us to know the Lord in a personal, life-changing way. And once we have that eternal life, it's eternal. If It's an oxymoron to say that you can lose eternal life. Now, there are some believers who say, well, you can be assured of salvation, but not necessarily be eternally secure. Uh, those would be some of our Pentecostal brothers, Assemblies of God, uh, some Methodists, some Episcopalians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they don't teach. And again, there's exceptions. You'll find a Methodist who believes in the doctrine of eternal security. Then you'll find some who, who don't believe in it. Um, so again, um, I, I don't want to broad brush and say this is true of everyone, but generally it's true in their doctrinal statements. The Pentecostals, you know, because they are experientially driven in their theology, uh, they tend to assess a lot of theological decisions based on what they see rather than what, what God says. And you can't do uh, theology by experience. You can't say, well, Joe was a member of our church and he was active for five years and even became a deacon, and now today he rejects Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's theology by experience to conclude that Joe was once saved and now he's lost his salvation. Uh, No, that's not what the Bible teaches. So there are some who say, well, I know today that I'm saved. I'm assured of my salvation, but I don't know that I'm eternally secure because I could lose my salvation next week or next month. And, you know, and so, um, 
again, there's really a lot of confusion in those realms. So the New Testament teaches not only assurance of salvation, but our eternal security. Uh, can we be assured? Well, listen to this verse. This is found in 1 John chapter 5, and he says, uh, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And he prefaced that by saying, and the testimony or the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. By the way, if God did not give us eternal life, no one could have assurance. If salvation in some way, shape, or form were earned and you had to do something to achieve it, then you could never be assured because you would never know until you died whether you did enough good or the good that you did, you did well enough. Uh, But it's not on that basis. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Gifts are not earned, they're received. Someone else does the work to provide it for you at no cost. And God did the work on a cross. So God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You can't be 25% saved or 50% saved or 99% saved. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. You're either a goat or a sheep. There's no in-between status, according to Scripture. At a point in time, you cross the threshold where God grants you eternal life. And then he says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, wait a minute, John. What do you mean you've written this so that I can know? Um, because he's dealing with some pre-Gnostic theology that had entered into the churches that some people were influenced by. So when he says, these things I've written you, you want to ask what things? And again, it's a repeated phrase in 1 John. He's giving basically some marks in 1 John that someone is born again. And if these things characterize your life, then you obviously have the mark of being born from above, that you're a new creation, that the old things have passed away and all things have become new, such that you can know that you have eternal life. So initially, someone can know they have eternal life because the moment they believe it is based on the finished work of Christ. Having assurance of salvation is a three-legged stool. The initial way a person can know that they are saved is based on the fact of Christ completed the work. Again, he shouts, to tell us die, it's finished, it's paid in full. We could not have assurance if salvation were not paid in full. But because it is, the New Testament can give assurance on that, and a person can say, I'm saved, and be baptized an hour later. And that happened often in the book of Acts. The second basis by which God gives assurance is the internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I've become a child of God. Um, And so as you begin to grow, there's a new reality that something's changed. Uh, You experience it, for instance, Paul says, in the context of Romans 8, where you crowd to God, Daddy, Abba, Father. There's a new tenderness that you sense in your relationship with God that you didn't have before. Now, when a baby is born, you know, they're alive, they're screaming, they're making self, themselves known, but they're not all that aware. 
But as they begin to grow, a few weeks go by and they start looking at you and they smile at you. And before long, they're crawling and and saying words and walking and a whole world opens up to them as they grow. Well, as we start growing in Christ, which is not possible until you've been born from above, you cannot grow until you've been born again. And there are a lot of people who are trying to grow without the new birth, and it's impossible. And very often they they have a false assurance of salvation. Uh, Someone came to my Meet the Pastor meeting last Sunday night. They said they're 100% sure. Why should God let them in? And they articulated the good works they've done. That's a classic example of someone with a false assurance. And then, of course, there are those people in Matthew 7 who could give the right answers, but they had a false assurance because their life had never been changed. Their faith was intellectual only, but it never reached the heart. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, Paul will write in Romans chapter 10. So there's the initial assurance that is given based on the finished work of Christ. There is the assurance that begins to develop as the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. There's a new intimacy with God that you sense. And the third leg of that stool is a changed life. Your life changes. And, of course, this is where good works come in. And this is the theme of 1 John. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What are some of those marks? Well, you'll walk in the light as he's in the light. Uh, there's a new desire for obedience. Uh, 1 John 2, for instance, will say in 1 John 2, I'm just turning back here a page in my Bible, by this we know that we have come to know him. Uh, you could say, by this we know that we've come to be born again. What did Jesus say eternal life is? That they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. By this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so, again, he's not talking about sinless perfection. Contextually, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, why? Because Christians sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Uh, if we say we've not sinned in 1 John 1.10, we are calling God a liar and his word is not in us. But what he is saying here in 1 John 2, <clears throat> 3 and 4, that there's a new direction your life takes a new direction of obedience. Um, He gives other marks. Remember, these things I've written to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, He will write here, also in the same chapter, the one who says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, there are people like Nancy Pelosi who says she's a Christian. In fact, she grossly misquoted uh, Matthew 25 this past week. And, you know, my heart went out for her. You know, I pray for her. But she is right now living the life of a wicked woman. She is advocating the murder of innocent little children. That's wickedness. That That's like evil beyond evil. Um, But she calls herself a Christian. Uh, And does she like evangelicals? Not at all. Not at all. She doesn't like us at all. Well, the one who says he loves his, you know, the Lord, but doesn't love his brother, he's deceived himself. Again, someone who's born again, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What things? These things I'm writing in this epistle. Uh, They have a different view towards the world. Do not love the world. By the world, he's not talking about the people of the world. 
He's talking about the world system. Remember, the Bible says that the God of this world, small g, uh, Satan, is basically in control as much as God will allow him. Um, He is the one who is orchestrating the world system that we live in. And the prince of the power of the air is energizing, ergal, uh, the sons of disobedience, lost people. So do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So one of the marks that I'm born again is it's not that I can't be tempted by the world system. Again, John just said in 1 John 1, every Christian who's born from above has that capacity. But if there's not a new direction, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. And if there's not a new obedience in the heart, a love for believers, and a hatred for the world, then I I really don't have the mark of being born from above. Uh, Again, I'm just in chapter 2, barely gotten out of that. Um, He says, uh, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who uh, confesses the Son has the Father also. Uh, As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he made to us, eternal life. So again, he's giving another mark here, that there's an abiding perseverance that Jesus is Lord. And someone can't say, well, I love God, but I don't love Jesus. It's impossible. Um, there, there's a, a change towards the way you view Jesus. By this, here's chapter 3, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Again, there's a new practice. Uh, there's a new righteous living. Um, 1 John 4, um, just giving some samples out of every chapter. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the Spirit. Okay, there we go. We are indwelt by the Spirit. Um, So there are many marks. Um, We could go to other books like Hebrews 12 where there he says, uh, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Uh, He's quoting the book of Proverbs chapter 3. He'll say, what father, you know, among you didn't discipline his children? Uh, at least that was true in the first century. Dads took that responsibility. Why did they do it? Because they loved you. And uh, I never disciplined my next-door neighbor's children, only my own. It's not that I didn't love the next-door neighbor's children, but they weren't mine to discipline. And those whom the Lord loves, those whom he has a special affinity for, when they get out of line, he disciplines that person, and it brings um, his his loving hand However, it needs to express itself to change that behavior. So assurance is a three-legged stool. Initially, you have it because, ah, I know I'm saved. I'm 100% sure. Why? Well, because Jesus paid it all. He saved me by his grace and his mercy. Nothing I did, but I've trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, plus nothing I do. Ah, a second leg. I have a new sense of intimacy with God that I never dreamed possible, that I never experienced before. The Spirit is bearing witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. 
There's a new sense of joy and peace and love for the things of God and a new tenderness in my relationship with God that I never had before. Ah, a third leg to that stool, a changed life. I'm walking in the light. I'm living a life of obedience. I have a love for the brethren, a hatred for the world. I persevere in my confession of Christ. I am committed to righteous living, the Spirit's testimony. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know. You can know, not hope, wonder, think, but know if these marks of a changed life are evidencing themselves uh, through a birth from above. Great question. Great, great question. By the way, I spent three weeks on this in the discovery class, this very question. It's a very, very important question. It's called the eternal security of the believer, and we deal with assurance and eternal security. I've just barely touched on it here, but we're going to start offering that again on Wednesday nights, beginning the first Wednesday night in June. I'll be teaching the discovery class because we had like 90 new Christians who were attending it, mostly new Christians, a few believers who had never been discipled, but we've had people come to Christ during this virus, and we want to provide a place where they can get grounded. It has three groups of people in mind, A, brand new Christians, B, people have been Christians maybe for months, years, decades, but never discipled, and so they stayed babes in Christ, and the third group are mature Christians who want to know how to disciple someone else. So that's going to be offered starting the first Wednesday night in June here in 2020. Let's go to the next question. All right. Gabby writes, I just want to know, Dr. Brogy, if you are a cessationist, cessationist, I think I pronounced that correctly, or continuationist, and how the Word of God supports your view on the matter. Well, uh, let me some define some terms because not everyone is familiar with um, what Gabby has presented. When you become a Christian on the day that God saves you, not only does he indwell you with the Holy Spirit, but he gives you, he gives you an ability that you didn't have before conversion. There are 20 such spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And um, every Christian has at least one. So you can't say, I'm not a gifted person. And very often what Christians do is they mix in their mind natural talents with spiritual gifts. Natural talents are given to you by God at physical birth through your parents. And so when you're born wrapped up in that little baby, it might be a great operatic voice. It might be uh, the ability to work computers, to fix things mechanically. Uh, it might be a proclivity towards math. Or uh, a, 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 I look at my eight-year-old granddaughter, Grace, and man, I can't believe some of the artwork an eight-year-old can produce. It just blows my mind away. Um, that is something that God wrapped up in her personality through physical birth. Well, when you're born from above, on the day that God saves you, he not only indwells you by the third member of the Godhead, but he gifts you. And there are 20 such gifts that are listed in the New Testament. The four central passages are easy to remember. 2 fours, two twelves. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, uh, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians, really chapters 12 through 14. And there you will find uh, the spiritual gifts that are given. By the way, you don't determine your spiritual gift. Uh, Paul, for instance, says here in 1 Corinthians 12, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service or ministries, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. In fact, interestingly, in the various passages that I quoted, the central passages on spiritual gifts. And by a central passage, I mean these are passages that 
you know, promote the subject. Those sprinkled all the way through the New Testament, you will find these gifts manifested or in some places um, explained or used. Um, But Peter would say, for instance, is each one has received a special gift. Uh, It's the manifest itself um, in serving God. So each one, each Christian has a spiritual gift. Now, when you think about the 20 gifts that are listed in the New Testament, continuationism says that the gifts continue to this day. It basically is the belief in the, the, the gifts that are of rub are usually healings, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and miracles. And they would say that these four gifts are continuing today, and there has never been any cessation of these gifts since the day of Pentecost. And so they maintain that there's, quote-unquote, no Bible evidence to say that they ever stopped. Well, even within this group, you need to note that there are extremes. Just like with any doctrine, there's the hyper-Calvinists and the uh, moderate Calvinists and the mild Calvinists, and so there are gradations. And, of course, the hyper-Calvinists would say, if you're not a hyper-Calvinist, you're not a Calvinist at all. And so there are debates within this group. But on one extreme, there are those who teach that some of these sign gifts, like speaking in tongues, are necessary to be saved. Now, that's become more of a minority position amongst continuationists. But that, by the way, was the primary position when the whole Pentecostal movement uh, showed itself anew in the 19, uh, first 10 years, in 1901 on to about 1910 at there was a Sousa Street revival, too, that took place in that first decade of the 20th century. And uh, some would say, well, this was the rebirth of uh, these spiritual gifts and, you know, we're believing God again. And, and so in the early Pentecostal movement, they would say, unless you spoke in tongues, you weren't saved. Because speaking in tongues was a mark of being born again. And they would cite passages like Acts 2 where in the day of Pentecost, there was a physical manifestation of the spirits indwelling, or Acts 10, where Peter in Acts 11 looks back and says, hey, what happened to Cornelius is the same thing that happened to us when we received the Holy Spirit, or Acts 19, and and they would say these physical manifestations were normative. Now, most Pentecostals today don't believe that, but here's the thing, is they're always changing their theology. Um, Others would say that basically speaking in tongues is a mark that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they call this a second work of grace. They often call it the baptism of the Spirit. And again, uh, you've got some Pentecostals who are a little more thoughtful in their approach to Scripture, and they would recognize, no, you can't call this the baptism of the Spirit. But that was typical, traditional Pentecostal theology, that the baptism of the Spirit was a second work of grace that happened uh, after you were born again. It was this deeper work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, problem with that is you've got verses like 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, we have all been baptized, every one of us, by the Spirit. And even in the Corinthian church, he'll, rem- he'll ask some rhetorical questions. We're not all going to speak in tongues, are we? Well, well, well no. Um, we're not all going to do miracles, are we? No. And so Paul makes it very clear that the baptism of the Spirit happens at the moment of conversion. That's Ephesians 1, 13 through 15. 
So my point is, is that even within um, the continuationist movement where they say there's this unbroken giving of the spiritual gifts, there have been various camps and, and they've changed their theology over the years. Uh, and so it's important to remember that. But remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve eleven here that the Spirit distributes to each one these gifts as he determines. So if you go into some church and they're trying to get you to speak in tongues and they say, well, you need to get this gift either to be saved or as this second work of grace, you know already they're confused and they're, they're off tilter, kilter because, um, you know, Paul says four different times in the New Testament that we don't determine what gift we get. God determines the gift we get. So I, I don't have that in control. So in contrast to continuationism, there's what we call cessationism, not sensationalism, but cessationism, which basically says that some of these sign gifts ceased and they're no longer in operation today. And again, the four that are usually uh, that we deal with are tongues, interpretation of tongues, healings, and miracles. And let me just say parenthetically that we're not saying that God doesn't still do miracles, we, we've never taught that. We're talking about whether God does miracles through people. And by the way, we should also say while we're here, and I brought it out in this sermon, I think that this person is asking that there's never been a continuation of miracles all the way through biblical history. You know, no one did miracles until Moses came on the scene. Adam never did a miracle. Abel, the first prophet, never did a miracle. Abraham, the friend of God, never did a miracle. Joseph, who was used of God in an extraordinary way to preserve the nation, he never did a miracle. You know, you have all these great men and women of faith who never did a miracle. And so no one does a miracle until Moses comes on the scene, and then for a short time through Joshua, and then hundreds and hundreds of years go by, and no miracles are done again until the time of Elijah the prophet. Elijah and Elisha step on the scene. Um, and then hundreds and hundreds of years go by and no one does a miracle until Christ and his apostles come on the scene. And interestingly, these miracles uh, through an individual has ceased. Sometimes God, you know, answers a prayer and does something that the doctors said was impossible. But two, sometimes we call things miracles that are not miracles. We hold a little baby in our hand and we say, what a miracle. Well, uh, technically, a miracle is when God suspends the laws that he made to run the universe. A miracle would be for me on earth to defy the law of gravity and to begin to float. That would be a miracle. A miracle would be for God to split the Red Sea in two and to create two walls of water and, and then to bring a strong wind to dry the sea floor so that, you know, some two million uh, Hebrews could cross through on dry ground. That's a miracle. So we use the word very, very loosely sometimes. But again, understand, for instance, uh, a couple verses that come to mind would be in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So he's standing up. And he's reminding them that there was a certain attestation that came with their ministries, that there was a a miraculous side uh, to what they were witnessing there, that what was happening was not that these men were drunk, as some of the cynics were saying, 
but there was a supernatural ability to speak in an unknown language that they didn't have before. Um, and, and that's uh, amazing. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is testifying to the word of his grace, granting them signs and wonders that he did by their hands. He's talking about a work that God did supernaturally through the apostles. Another verse that comes to mind would be here in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. Now, Paul, in this section of Corinthians, is defending his apostleship against those who said they were apostles, and Paul was a nobody. And Paul just reminded them, look, the signs, the attesting miracles of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul is saying, look, I did the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do that none of these guys who are claiming to be apostles ever did. If everyone can do the signs, wonders, and miracles that Paul did, then his argument is meaningless, but not everyone can do them. And so we have to acknowledge at some point um, that these miracles will not be unbroken. At some point, they will cease. Let me, Rick, let me ask you a question, if I might. Um, if uh, wh- Which group would you associate, which denomination, say, would you associate um, someone who is speaking in tongues or doing the miraculous or maybe outbursts of l- laughter or falling on the floor, what's called slain in the spirit, what group today would you associate that with? Uh, Probably Pentecostals. And you'd be absolutely right. Charismatic, Pentecostal, New Apostolic Reformation movement. Uh, But you'd be equally correct if you answered Hindus, because uh, if you go to India, I've only been there twice, um, but there are sects within Hinduism that do the exact same things. So you have to immediately think, well, is all of this legitimate then if everyone can do these things who are not Christians? If spiritual gifts are only given to born-again people and Hindus who you know worship some 300 million gods, then obviously what they're doing is not from the Lord. And so you have to immediately say, well, maybe some of what's happening today is not necessarily coming from God. And so how do you explain some of this stuff? Well, look, let's just say for the sake of argument, the gift of tongues is still given today. You ought to be able to videotape any group of any people who are speaking in tongues and um, record it and get anyone that you can find who didn't witness this. Let them watch, you know, what you just recorded of an individual or group of individuals speaking in tongues and and someone that they say they have the gift of interpretation. You ought to be able to play that video and get the identical interpretation. You know what? It's never, ever, 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 ever happened. Because what we have today is really a mockery of what we see in the New Testament. There's only one passage in all the New Testament that actually illustrates for us the nature of tongues, and it's Acts 2, where there's 15 different languages and not only languages that are expressed, but he uses a second word beyond glossolalia. He uses the word dialectos. We get our word dialect from it. It was the ability to speak a different language that you didn't know and a dialect within that language. That's a miracle for Carl Brogy to speak Mandarin Chinese. That would be a miracle. Not only Chinese, but Mandarin Chinese. 
And so um, what we're seeing today really dismisses the miraculous. It's downplaying what God has done. And you've got all these faith healers. And by the way, where are all these faith healers today? We've got this COVID virus going on. Where are these guys? You know, where are they right now? If they've got this ability to heal, why don't they heal going to some of these ICU units and, you know, at least help the Christians and lay hands on them and heal them? They're not going to do it because they're a bunch of frauds and fakes and phonies. And so this whole Bethel church movement, it is dangerous beyond dangerous beyond dangerous. So this dear lady, my heart broke for her when she lost her child and that baby, you know, had been dead for several days. And finally they decided they had to bury the child. But, you know, the whole church was believing that God was going to raise the child from the dead. Well, listen, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that plays on people's emotions and You know, they grow these fake legs. It's just, it's a parlor trick. It's not a miracle from God. Okay, I'm not trying to be ugly here. I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts. I've read through this thing up one side, down the other. And, uh, but for this caller who wants to, I'm just giving you the short answer. What you might want to do is go to my spiritual gifts course which is online at searchthescriptures.org, and there's a phone app if you want to download it, and go to Section 6, Sign Gifts in the New Testament, where I walk through very, very carefully the four sign gifts, healings, miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And you'll, I think, understand why I have come to the position I have, what's called the cessationist view that the gifts have stopped. And interesting, church history records that when the canon of Scripture was completed, that these gifts stopped. They just stopped. We know at some point they're going to stop. Paul says love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Uh, He says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. So he's acknowledging there's coming a time in the future. Now, people debate what that refers to when the perfect comes. But interestingly, church history records that when the canon of Scripture was completed and there was no need for special revelation to be ongoing, that these gifts ceased and as the apostles left the scene. Anyway, great questions. Appreciate all that came in. A lot of questions we didn't get to, but if you have questions, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down menu, Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. You can submit it there, or you can text it to us here at tbl at whep.net. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. <music> 